This is hell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. In 2015, about five and a half years ago, protesters against police violence in Chicago had had enough. After the police killing of teenager Laquan McDonald and the refusal by then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel to release the video of the police killing and decades and decades of protests that were seemingly getting nowhere as police still were killing with impunity, the protesters decided to take a more confrontational approach. No longer would they only engage in permitted marches and spaces approved by the state and police. Instead, they took their case directly to the people. And on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving 2015, the biggest shopping day of the year, they shut down the busiest shopping district in Chicago. It was disruptive, effective, and soon after, everyone understood what Black Lives Matter meant. Protesters had remembered the old strategy of confrontation and how it is effective, and it does work. Now, fast forward to March of this year, 2021, when we spoke with Turkish-born writer Max Zerngast about the crackdown on dissent by the Erdogan government as protests against the mass police arrests of dissidents started becoming more effective and, yes, more disruptive. The EU, the European Union then threatened sanctions against Erdogan for his actions, his police actions. However, U.S. President Joe Biden and German Chancellor Angela Merkel derailed those plans, stating they favored an approach that prioritizes EU investment in Turkey over things like justice and human rights. Then in April, we spoke with Giulio Derrico, live from Greece, about the far-right-wing government of Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and its crackdown by police on college campuses as protests challenging expanded police powers had erupted across the country. As Julio pointed out, Greek student protesters should not look to the U.S. for help in their struggle for free speech and assembly because the police crackdown on Greek campuses has been, quote, a long time request of the U.S. Embassy in Athens as shown by leaked cables dating back to 2006 couple weeks after Julio got us caught up on what's happening with police crackdowns in Greece, we were off to the UK where we spoke with Adrian Kreutz about Prime Minister Boris Johnson's own police crackdown bill and how it would essentially silence protests. Today, we'll find out what has happened with the UK protest crackdown bill, learn about a new law that would extend police powers in France, and how such legislation is now coming to the United States as well as what happens when the police become a political movement, if not a political force. When we speak in a few minutes with writer and translator Rona Lorimer, who posted the Brooklyn Rail article, Pity the Police, New Laws to Back the Blue. Rona is from London and currently lives in Paris. Rona's work can be found at the Brooklyn Rail, endnotes.org.uk, Mute, Commune Magazine, and Mask Magazine. See Rona's additional writing on the French laws to extend police power entitled Images About Images at endnotes.org.uk. Follow Rona on Twitter at La Servus 2, that's L-A-S-E-R-V-E-U-S-E, and then the number 2. By the way, considering Biden's support of Erdogan's and Mitsotakis' police crackdowns, is it any surprise that former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who refused to release the video of the murder of Laquan McDonald by police, a crime that led to the conviction and imprisonment of the police officer, is it any surprise that President Biden this week announced he will nominate former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel 
as ambassador to Japan. Apparently, if you try to cover up the police killing of an unarmed black teenager who is on in no way endangering anyone's life, you too someday may become U.S. ambassador to Japan. Way to go, Joe. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from Al. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow at Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. And maybe tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week gone so far? I uh, came to the bar for the first time in 14 months because I was uh, upstairs working on the studio. Mm-hmm. And I uh, did the Alex special, which is a uh, tip $5 on a Diet Coke and leave without saying goodbye to anyone. <laughs> that felt great. Nice. <laughs> Who is standing by? Uh, Clay. Oh, there you go. Don't see him very often. My week uh, has literally been a nightmare. A nightmare that will not stop repeating itself. And to be honest, I'm getting a bit tired of the old reruns playing in my head every night. The kind that jolt me out of my sleep and leave me staring at the ceiling for Lord knows how long. Maybe seven seconds, maybe 35 minutes. I have no idea. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, This Is Hell is completely listener supported, so without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, during this week's moment, Jeff will be reviewing Bo O'Reilly's new record because it's the last thing Michael Martin asked him to do. Michael Martin is an actor who recently passed away. There's a large profile in the Chicago Reader last week about him, and you can check that out online. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell. Following our guest again, this week's Question from Hell is, what are you old enough to remember? We got a letter a couple weeks ago that was dated 2019, but the 2019 was crossed out and was replaced by the year 2021. The letter was about a scheduled burn at a local elementary school nature lot. Why we received this letter, why it was dated 2019 and then changed by hand to 2021 was beyond any of us. So we asked if anybody in the listening audience could please explain why we would get such a letter that was directly hand addressed to This Is Hell. Well, we got an email at Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com from Stephen yesterday who writes, Hi Chuck, I enjoy your show. I heard the other week you mentioned that letter about a burn. I'm a recent graduate of Northeastern Illinois University with a degree in environmental studies. We have a prairie on campus, which is surrounded by a residential neighborhood, so a burn is an annual event, ideally. The academic terms are best practices. You follow and adhere to every law in the books, federal, state, county, city, municipal. You alert everybody by post, snail mail, canvas the neighborhood affected with flyers, calls, more public notices before, then alert and coordinate with five departments in the Illinois or fire departments in the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. So Chuck, what you received was a boilerplate letter with standard best practices. Who knows about the time of delivery with Chicago Posts, but you did get it. I left a voicemail for you with my number. Again, Alex, you can leave a voicemail with us. I hope this sheds some light for you. Any future queries, feel free. Best regards, Stephen. All of that makes sense, Stephen, except this. The school where the burn is taking place is more than three miles away. There's no way it's going to have any effect on us whatsoever. Nobody in my neighborhood far north of the burn got this letter but us. I know that because I live in the neighborhood in a multi-unit building, 
and have many friends and family members in the area, and none of them, including those who live far closer to the burn, miles closer to the burn location, they did not receive this letter. Also, boilerplate letters do not come with dates crossed out by hand, and the letters are never addressed by hand. So thanks, Stephen. I appreciate your information on best practices and warning neighbors of an environmentally friendly burn, but it still makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that we would have a letter personally addressed to us about a burn that is happening far from us while none of our neighbors are getting a similar letter. We also heard from Chris B., who asked if the name of our show, This Is Hell, was literal or figurative, figurative, which we addressed on last week's Patreon podcast. Chris writes, I finally caught your show live on Monday via the link that was on the homepage at thisishell.com, which Tuesday reverted to its previous state of no live link. But This Is Hell, after all, and unexpected change, revision, and reversions are to be expected. Again, my uh, my apologies, my own personal apologies, as we did not do a show on Tuesday because I needed a mental health day, as we all do. Chris continues, Thank you for the on-air responses on the literal or figurative nature of your show's title. Is there a show in your archive that details your experiences in 1987 that led to you naming the show This Is Hell, as you alluded to in your Patreon podcast? There is Chris, and I did some digging this morning, but I couldn't find that monologue. And when I do, I will be sharing it with all of you. And your references, uh, you, at one point, yeah, check this out. He continues saying that he write, he uh, mentions Noam Chomsky and how he's upset with Noam Chomsky about Noam Chomsky's lesser evilism. And he sends us a really beautiful, beautiful cartoon drawing and it says uh, a, a lesser of two evils and let me see let me see if i can d- describe this a little bit better the cartoon chris says or gives us says lost in hell and then it depicts chomsky walking by two signs one points to death and one points to torture and chomsky is saying maybe there should be a third option and the whole thing is not only insightful but it's it's really beautifully drawn the tagline we use is Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So sadly and clearly, Noam has gone insane. And that's what made Chris send us this cartoon because of that tagline. Now, that's not about anything other than Noam's opinion that this show is somehow sanity. But on Noam and his lesser of two evils, there's really nothing new about this. He brings it up in a heated exchange with a member of the audience that is captured in the 1992 documentary Manufacturing Consent. So I really don't understand why it's suddenly a revelation that Noam Chomsky believes that the lesser of two evils is a justifiable voting strategy from his perspective when he considers how policies by both political parties have a direct, very direct effect on the daily lives of the most marginalized. Yes, it's horrible that both parties hold the poor hostage at election time, but this sudden acknowledgement of a position Chomsky has taken for over 30 years, and it even dates back to his anti-Vietnam War activism. It's kind of bewildering to me. That said, it's also equally bewildering that Noam, after participating in the World Social Forum events at the turn of the century, and having had contact with the people of Rojava, and I know this because I connected him with the people of Rojava and Dilar Dirik, that he would not be speaking out more about direct democracy and the shortcomings of representative democracy. Coming up in response to protests against climate change and police brutality, Western democracies are 
extending police powers, of course. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week, and we will have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff will be reviewing Bo O'Reilly's new record because it's the last thing Michael Martin asked Jeff to do. And if you are in the theater scene in Chicago or Los Angeles, you probably know what that means a lot more than I do. I also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you old enough to remember? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell protests prior to the pandemic. We're suddenly having a lot more success. The new, more confrontational style of activism seemed to finally be getting through, and there seemed to be a shift in popular opinion when it came to the two main themes of protest, those being climate change and police brutality. Then the pandemic came, and everything changed. Here to tell us how the West is cracking down on protest, writer and translator Rona Lorimer posted the Brooklyn Rail article, Pity the Poor Police, New Laws to Back the Blue. Welcome to This Is Hell, Rona. Hi, thank you very much for having me on the show. This is fantastic writing, and it fits in with so much of what we've been discussing over the last couple of months on our show. You write the French and British governments, along with American lawmakers, are currently passing laws intended, among other things, to extend police powers to contain and control protests. Yesterday, we were talking to historian Matt Lassiter, who's part of a team that created the Detroit Under Fire multimedia online presentation, revealing racialized brutality and violence, including killings by Detroit Police Department officers, which increased greatly after the uprising against police brutality in the summer of 1967. To you, what explains the state response to protests against uh, racialized police brutality? Why create circumstances that might lead to more brutality when the public is rising up against police brutality? What what does that reaction reveal t- about the state, about the police, and how they relate to the people? In France, it's more like, it seems more like the law that's pa- that's passed now, which is called the global security law, it seems to... It, it it doesn't relate exactly to that directly to that but it it, it um reduces the kind of opportunities to hold police accountable after such violence would have taken place so it's kind of like a green light for police um and it just seems like in these three cases i was originally you know most I was most familiar with the French law because I live in France. But then once I started looking into the British one and then the at the time that I wrote the article, there were 71 laws pending in America. And it seems like what they had in common was that they were direct responses to the wave of protests which had happened during the pandemic. And although I'm definitely not an expert, I think that it's it's on the one hand that there's a kind of raised consciousness about police brutality amongst people who don't generally suffer it directly. And on the other hand, I think that the police's job is being kind of extended and police are having to do things like police lockdowns and police basically enforce austerity in one way or another because people are also responding to their material conditions and feeling squeezed. And so the police are kind of radicalizing in response to um, 
people gen you know ordinary people radicalizing i don't know if that's yeah <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and you uh, point out that the French global security law, this is their anti-protest law, their police extension of powers law, similarly as the British law, inverts the risk police pose to protesters. It locates danger to police in images, both photographic images circulated on social media and in newspapers, and the symbolic or social public image of the police. What is that public image of police the law hopes to portray? In 2015, the police actually had quite a lot of public support at the beginning of the year because the attacks happened against Charlie Hebdo and the attacks happened, the, the terrorist attacks, I mean, happened um, also in the Bataclan, um, these like very uh, deathly terrorist attacks. And so in, in terms of how the public would the general public would feel about the police and whether they felt reassured by their presence. I think they had a lot more margin. However, now, um, well, the argument that I make in my EndNotes essay and also in this one is that because there was this Gilles Jaune movement plus a kind of global movement for um, against you know racist policing, um, and especially because the Gilets Jaunes protest involved people that weren't generally involved in protest. And those were people who filmed the police. That's why it specifically revolves around images because people filmed en masse, which was something never before seen in far left protests, um, that there was suddenly this kind of mass witnessing of what police actually do in demonstrations. And so it's, so the image of the police as being the kind of French of the people protecting them from terrorism, you know, it's deteriorated. And so now the police have to do their job of being just as violent or more violent than they were before. And I say more violent because the Gilets Jaunes movement was so strong that actually protests got more violent and in, you know, in turn than policing arguably did in the context of a, of a demonstration, I mean, like they had new tactics and so on. And so they're now kind of battling with the fact that a kind of middle class white French audience, I think, are now familiar with what the police actually mean um, in or like what the police actually do in demonstrations. And I think that's why it, it revolves around images of police. And you and you point out that the French global security law was proposed by Gérald Darmanin, a uh, former member of the Republicans appointed to Macron's government last October, just before the whole country went into its second full lockdown under COVID-19. One of its most controversial sections was Article 24, which made it a criminal offense to publish by any medium the face or any other identifying feature of a police officer with the aim of causing them physical or psychological harm by, for example, disseminating a video which displayed the officer brutalizing someone. This part of the law was naturally contested, particularly because in targeting images in general, it infringes on press law and the freedom of journalists who, as a group with a platform, were able to be very vocal about it. So is the intent to censor all videos of police violence? Because I find it ironic that in this time of increased surveillance of the public by the police, the police are asking for less surveillance of the police. Sorry, what's what? Yeah, I mean, it is ironic. Absolutely. Um, is the intent to censor all videos of police violence? Is that the intent of the French law? 
I mean, I think it's, I think the, I think the attempt is to make a kind of monopoly on which images can be used afterwards in court cases which might litigate on who's done harm to who. So it kind of displaces the scene of conflict to like after a demonstration. Um, and the reason it's a monopoly on images is because the law is accompanied by an interior kind of this this white paper. So this kind of this kind of report that goes through parliament, which makes all kinds of decisions about things and recommends things. And in the white paper on interior security, as it's called, um, concessions are made to kind of Black Lives Matter-esque movements um, saying that in court footage from body cams and drones will be used. Um, and so the idea is that the state is trying to seem as though it's very transparent and fair and using, you know, objective images. Um, but it but it means that they don't want to, they don't want the possibility of kind of civilian images because there's this kind of explosion of people being their very own journalist on the streets or taking videos. And I think often when people do film uh, the police, you know, it, it, with, it, it could have an effect, you know, it, it certainly, it might not actually prevent somebody from being seriously harmed or, or even murdered, but it, but it, it might possibly provide some kind of superego that, you know, because, you know, that policeman might get fired or put through a court process. So the idea that you extinguish all images that could be, be taken by either journalists or really just, you know, YouTubers or, or kind of people with lots of Twitter followers or not, um, it means that the, the, the state is deciding which images and in which circumstances get to be used to, to hold police accountable. Yeah, and it sounds like if, if that's the case, then that does sound like censorship. And they're saying that they're trying to, you know, still defend the right to freedom of speech and assembly, but it doesn't sound like that. You also point to two riots in Paris on November 28th and December 5th of last year. Which provided the strange spectacle uh, or allegory of journalists joining the black bloc to fight the police in open combat. Article, which is something I have not yet seen here in the United States, but it is it's really amazing. Article 24 was officially withdrawn. In reality, it was simply incorporated into Article 18 of the Law of Separatism, which seeks to strengthen Republican values by criminalizing religious groups or communities seen to be separatist or simply separate from France's famous secularism. So in the UK, as you point out earlier in the article, they're targeting travelers. In France, it's the criminalization of unpopular religious groups. Here in the States, it's white supremacists, what the FBI unbelievably calls black identity extremists and immigrants. Do these laws that are extending police powers first target the unpopular, and then those laws, once implemented, are expanded to cover a wider section of the population? And if that's the case, why doesn't that wider section of the population recognize that that happens? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the American situation well enough, but it seemed to me that when I read through, kind of read through as much as I could from the not the profit for the nonprofit center for law or something, um, that it seemed like the laws are being made by Republican lawmakers, and then they need to pass, right? So they they seem to be aimed perhaps sometimes at, at liberal. Um, kind of authorities who will pass them is that how it works and so they seem to use the threat of 
white supremacists. So they mention the capital, but then in their actual content, they seem to be harming or or harming leftist protest or legitimizing violence against um, leftist protesters. And so they kind of put everyone in the same basket. Like I noticed that some laws even kind of give some kind of legal immunity to cars that drive through uh, protests, like crowds of protesters, like like what happened in, in Charlottesville and also during the George Floyd uprisings. Um, and it would mean that those people don't get convicted of anything because apparently they're scared or something. So that's, that's happening. And then in the British law, there's the idea that travellers make, uh, you know, the public, whoever that is, feel uncomfortable. And in France, um, they are, when they say physical or psychological threat to officers, what they're really pointing towards is a terrorist threat. That's why they moved the clause into the other law. So they're saying that police who are identified online, kind of doxxed, will be at risk of terrorists attacking them. But in practice, that the law actually kind of points back to, to be able to suppress gilets jaunes or Black Lives Matter-esque protest. So in all cases, they kind of point towards actually a sort of, you know, in the case of the states, a, a right-wing danger to, you know, maybe make it acceptable to a liberal lawmaker and then, but then in practice. And actually it's interesting just quickly that on the question of, it's not in this law, but in, on December like 6th, 12th, 11th, I think, there were seven, what were called seven members of the ultra left were arrested ahead of one of the protests against the global security law. And there was a piece in Le Monde Diplomatique about it last month, which was quite good, which said that um, a sort of series of anti-terrorism laws uh, aimed to be against, you know, jihadists returning to France, to the French territory, and now being used against ultra-leftists and or leftists or whatever and in this case the 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 justification for this guy being arrested was that he'd been in Rojava fighting against ISIS and so the same law being used against um ISIS or suspected ISIS participants or something is now being used against people who actually went and fought with the Kurds against them which I find it extraordinary that is extraordinary. That's ridiculous. So what explains to you, I, I, I don't I hate to make you speculate, but so what explains to you why people, you know, when there's a crackdown on leftists by the police, why does the right support that? Why does the left support when there's a crackdown on right by police? Why do they, why does each side support a crackdown on dissent? Why don't they recognize the fact that that's going to come back and bite them in the ass? You mean like, for example, with the capital um, invasion that people were celebrating. Exactly. exactly. And, and then you see people, right. And then you see people online, you see these leftists online who are encouraging the FBI and they're actually helping them do investigations. I know this person. Here's this person I saw who was at the Capitol, the January 6th riot. What explains that attack on dissent not being perceived by the opposite side of the political spectrum? Don't, I mean, I really don't know. Maybe I suppose people have sh short memories. And then in that case, it seemed from a distance like a lot of people were settling kind of 
family arguments, like people were turning in their uncles and it seemed very sad. <laughs> I don't know, well, not very sad, but I mean, it just seemed like there were lots of things at play. And I suppose, yeah, I mean, I imagine that in that case, um, I imagine in that case that, that people have their immediate safety in, in, in view and maybe don't realize the implications of, of surveillance for everyone. But um, in the case of the, the French law, I, I really don't think it was so popular. I mean, I wouldn't be able to make a, an assessment of what the general population thinks about it, but certainly even inside of the parliament or the assembly, like the, you know, the, there were, there were a lot, there was a lot of um, fight about this article 24, which is why it got moved over. And there was also a lot of, uh, fear about this extended use of drones as well um and um yeah so. I, I find that you're i think that uh, idea of being concerned for your own personal safety that kind of makes a lot of sense and you also write of the french law uh to extend police powers that it renders it difficult for the public to hold police accountable extending police powers and state capacity for surveillance using a discourse of care not unlike the UK's wording of comfort and distress. It centers the physical and psychological well-being of police. It also raises police above the status of other citizens, meaning that any assault on an officer will soon be considered an act of terrorism. So how many more rights and privileges do police have than the public that you're sworn to serve and protect? Can, can the police and the people they serve and protect having equal rights, to what extent do you think that that can address issues like racialized police brutality um i mean I, yeah just on the first part of that it, i the word i kept thinking about when i was writing this was a uh, snowflake because they these these laws all use a kind of snowflake what, what the right would call a snowflake discourse or something like it's all about like the police's feelings and it's or you know you could even say it's gaslighting it's always pitting this kind of sentimental narrative about the safety of police who of course engage in the job of being police you know the difference between danger to a police officer and danger to a citizen is that a police officer has decided to do a job where they're supposedly at risk but anyway and um, so there's this kind of constant like gaslighting, if you like, where the situation of who's really at risk is being constantly um, reversed or something. Um, and yeah, that I suppose that's part of making the police sovereign in some ways. And in France, it's a kind of continuation of what happened in the in the state of emergency that was announced after the Bataclan terrorist attacks, which meant that like any decision made by police to extinguish a potential threat would be kind of accepted or something like that. But then in I'm in the case of it's a it's a strange one because the, the French law is around kind of erasing the, the bad image of police to make it easier for them to do their jobs. And that's been that's been done by police themselves, like police unions lobbying the government, basically. And the government have to make concessions to them because they need them because, I mean, to say it in a very crude way, like Macron has this very um, unpopular uh, program of like quite violent austerity. And so he needs the police and he also mainly was elected to stop Marine Le Pen getting elected. And 
on the whole, police officers tend to support Marine Le Pen. So there's this kind of political game going on about making, you know, making concessions to police. Um, in the English case, the in the British case, the police officers did a consultation process with the government because they were basically stretched by Extinction Rebellion and BLM. And so they, you know, they're also mobilizing as a force. But in the States, it's it's as if the laws give like I'm actually plagiarizing a friend of mine, but I don't know whether I should mention him by name. So I apologize to him in advance. But but he was pointing out that the 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 like the American case is almost taking the police out of the equation and and empowering proxy police because some of the laws, um, well, like there's you know there's this one that legitimates uh, driving through a crowd of, crowd of protesters, but there are also laws that seem to allow shopkeepers to use lethal force on a riot and a riot has been extended anyway to mean like three people in the street or something. Um, so it's almost like it's the same move, but in an opposite, in an opposite way. Um, and then I don't think I've missed the second part of your question, or maybe I've just not answered your question at all. No, 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 <laughs> you, you did. Uh, how, how important then do you think it is for the police to have this image of being the victims of crime rather than being the perpetrators of the violence because you talk about the case of Sarah Everard in the UK and how she was blamed for being out and about at the wrong time possibly when she was raped and murdered. So to what extent do the police need to be seen? How important is that victimhood of the police for their extending of their police powers? I mean, it seems like it's very important because it seems it seems like it's. I mean, it seems like it's the argument always used for any brute force is that a policeman was afraid. I'm not sure quite how to answer that question, but it seems like that's absolutely the argument being used by by police in in France, for example. And you also mentioned the emphasis on images in the French global security law is also aimed at containing recent movements, in particular the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement of 2018-2019, unlike the participants in left-wing protests, usually subjected to police violence, who are generally suspicious of forms of surveillance and aware of the dangers of filming each other. The Gilets Jaunes openly filmed themselves uh, at demonstrations. The property damage they caused was far above what had been seen in recent social movements, one of the reasons they achieved more than the trade union movement had in the last 30 or so years in terms of governmental concessions in a space of just two to three weeks. Now, this is something you're not going to hear reported on CNN, but what's what evidence is there that property damage led to successes experienced by the Yellow Vests? I, I don't know if they ever really experienced those successes, but they certainly had the concessions, which they then refused. Um and so, you know, what happened is there was this sudden eruption of basically like grandpas pulling down fences and throwing paving stones. And the Gilets Jaunes is, it's like an extremely like heterogeneous movement. So it's impossible to really explain who was in it, but certainly there were some parts of the Gilets Jaunes that saw themselves as like true citizens, like, and therefore, I think probably didn't think twice about um, damaging property. Like it wasn't even a question, I think. Um, and so then, you know, Macron came along in on December, whatever it was, like, I think 
10th or something and said, oh, we'll give you these all these things you didn't ask for. And uh, the Gilets Jaunes decided to keep um, occupying the roundabouts and keep coming up to Paris and keep doing property damage. And so because there was no trade union representation or or like you would have in a in a movement that would be about about something like the wage or something that Macron didn't have anyone to talk to he didn't he didn't know who to talk to 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 negotiate and so it became just this kind of I don't know like a kind of um an unmediated uh kind of violence where the negotiation was happening without words in the in the street there would be these huge demonstrations sometimes they would be very controlled by police but then they there was this you know this one in in march which which really is the time where uh macron then appointed a new police chief and had to restructure policing entirely and policing has been restructured to be much more mobile and to give police more powers because it used to be very centralized to give police more powers to decide things in quick situ situations precisely because the gilets jaunes were so mobile and jumping around all over the place and and did they you know they and there were some attempts by the gilets jaunes to like have some political representation of course there were kind of councils and general assemblies and there was the assembly of assemblies and there were attempts to speak for the movement there were even you know different people that tried to represent themselves in in the European elections, but on the whole, there wasn't this kind of um, mouthpiece. You also point out the heightened sentiment against the police from this corner of predominantly white France has converged in solidarity with the equivalent of the Black Lives Matter movement, notably the Comité Adama, uh, amongst other groups who campaigned for justice for families of those murdered by police and who were also active at the same time as the Gilets Jaunes. On June 2nd, 2020, Asa Traoré, whose brother, Adama, was murdered by cops in 2016, called for a protest over the killing of George Floyd. While this protest, just after the first lockdown ended, attested to French solidarity with the victims of police violence in the U.S., it also pointed to the racism of French police. Right-wing commentators would, would have been at ease criticizing what they see as big, bad America, where guns are easily obtainable and shootings happen at the drop of a hat. But Traoré's strategic move meant they could no longer ignore the prevalence of similar police violence in France. How can one killing cause France's right to finally confront the fact that French police, like their counterparts in the U.S., can be killers? How did that happen with one killing? Oh, but it's just not, it's not just one killing. I mean, Adama Traore was murdered just after the, in, in 2016, and Asa Traoré is, is an amazing, um, you know, organizer and she's with other people. It has this committee, Adama, to, to fight for, yeah, like racial justice, justice um, in the face of multiple and on, like multiple um, murders of non-white, uh, mainly men in, in the, in the banlieue, in the suburbs. Of Paris, and there are many others, uh, gay camera. Um, I oh god, and 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 even so, this is the kind of like recent wave of organizing around those questions. And so, yes, her organizing has been like extremely effective, I think, in terms of raising those issues and 
and she's she's brilliant but before that it's not as if these things were not um known or or seen you know there there's there's the the list of people that that are ch that are chanted about at demonstrations Ziad and Buna who were murdered in I think 2005 the two kids that were being chased by cops and um went in an electricity box and were electrocuted and the police's microphones happened to be on and and these these sound bites were recorded of them and, and circulated of them mocking these kids for like who who were about to die and that that sparked riots um many many others so th this is not at all new but what was interesting was that <laughs> i think what was interesting for me actually and then i reflected it reflected on it back the other way was that lots of American friends were saying, oh, it's good that you're like, you know, in France that people are waking up because of George Floyd. And it was like, well, no, not at all. There are these kind but Asa Traore's move is very clever because she sort of makes this international solidarity and then forces the French liberal media or mainstream media or even right-wing media to actually recognize that there's the same problem. So yeah, just in a long way of saying there's absolutely not just one murder, there are many. And and not just not just that. I mean, in terms of the recent years, there was Theo in the northern suburbs of Paris who was actually uh raped by a police baton, like a, this crazy policeman. Um, and there was a big movement for that, and that was one of the first movements, I think it was maybe the first time, either in a long time or the first time that high school students inside of Paris blocked their high schools in solidarity with the the suburbs and there, there were like ongoing riots and protests about that. So it's definitely, I think it's fresh, fresh in, in, um, yeah. And also, the, and also the thing to say about the Comité Adama is that they, played a really significant role in the early part of the Gilets Jaunes, whereas the left, the, you know, the, the kind of like official leftists didn't want to get involved because they were saying it was all fascists and it wasn't very interesting. Actually, the, the Comitia Dama were there right from the beginning on December 1st and along with other groups that, that do, you know, other kinds of organizing. And they were, they were very clear with about the strategy that if a, if a movement like that, that's very confused, is um fascist or being called fascist you have to go and put yourself in there and you also write that there these laws in the uk and france and the us broadly speaking mark a crisis in the legitimacy of the police and therefore in their capacity to keep order when there is a crisis of legitimacy with the police do the state and police always crack down? Is the only way to reestablish that legitimacy from the view of the uh, police is to crack down on the public? It, it, what other way can the police reestablish their legitimacy other than violence towards the public? Oh, I have no idea. I don't want to advise the police. About <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think there's a I, job there if you're interested. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, probably for somebody from like some obscure British Marxist journal or something. I think that's happened before. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so you write, as the state becomes less and less welfare-oriented across Europe and the recently Brexited British island, and as stimulus checks do not by any means cover the losses caused by the pandemic in America, the state is revealed in its incapacity to meet people's material needs or at least appease them as it could during boom times. It seems increasingly reduced to its police function. So as the state fails to provide social services, will the police functioning always increase? Because when people were making cuts to social services, I didn't hear that as a as one of the reasons why we shouldn't cut social services, because it will increase the police state. Mm. I mean, it's probably something that, that isn't very thought through in that in the article that I've written. I mean, because because in in, this, in a sense, in states like money's being, I know I, I know it's not sufficient, but it's being really pumped through, right? Um, I mean, I think I'm mainly talking about the about post austerity Europe since the 2008 crash, and I think also I think that's also I was also thinking about the fact that when people talk about Riots. I mean, even in the case of uh, loyalist riots in Northern Ireland, so meaning the riots by um, the anti-republican parts of Northern Ireland, that 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 people are making this argument about um, that. Oh, we don't really know what it's about. Is it about COVID? Is it about austerity? Is it about um, paramilitary gangs? Is it about this or that? And I think that. That I think it's true that, you know, in the case where you have riots, it's often people try and read them, and and so one thing to say is that that unrest, you know, even if it calls itself one thing, often it's you know often about um, increasingly difficult, or at least that's an argument I've also heard about the kind of different different yeah like factors that 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 create just a general unrest. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. One last um, one last question for you, Rona. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with writer and translator Rona Lorimer, who posted the Brooklyn Rail article, Pity the Poor Police. See Rona's additional writing on the French laws to extend police power entitled Images About Images at endnotes.org.uk and follow Rona on Twitter at L-A-S-E-R-V-E-U-S-E, and then the number two. So our question from hell for you, Rona, is you write that in the UK, the bill for extending police powers came out of a polite consultation process with police officers. In France, police trade unions are at the root of the law. They are its main supporters, putting an extra parliamentary pressure to help Macron push through his vicious liberalization program. And you point out that in America, it is Republican lawmakers who are making the effort with the visible force of police proxy movements such as Blue Lives Matter at their side. These laws show the magnitude of the current crises and the concurrent development of police as a politically articulate movement of their own. What happens when the police become a political force? Does the police as a political movement mean a police state? Maybe, or maybe it means like, maybe in America it might mean extended uh, powers, tacit powers to right-wing militias. I don't know what's worse, but um, that's the thing, isn't it? That there's these kind of 
there's there's a formal way of of empowering the police through laws and legislations that pertain to the police and there's another there's another way which which is to unevenly un unevenly produce a criminal class of left wing or you know poor people or whatever and then to not prosecute um uh blue lives matter white lives matter militias or so i really don't know <laughs> i'm not saying more laws i'm just saying these laws are extremely uneven um and that we should be really cynical about them i guess I don't really have an answer. <laughs> See, that, that's why it's the question from hell. Thank you yeah. so much for being on our show. We've been speaking with Rona Lorimer. You should find, follow her on Twitter at Lasarvus. That's L-A-S-E-R-V-E-U-S-E. -E -E, then the number two. See Rona's additional writing on the French laws to extend police power entitled Images of Images at endnotes.org.uk. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will find all the ways you can support your friends here at This Is Hell. Speaking of which, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast at the same place shortly after. On this week's Patreon podcast, we are sharing an interview we conducted 19 years ago in May of 2002, when we spoke to Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People, an organization that assisted the internationals who were standing with the besieged people at the Church of the Nativity. So this week, Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, an important religious site for Islam, in a search for suspected militants. Nineteen years ago, the Israeli Defense Forces laid siege to another religious site, the Church of the Nativity, one of the holiest sites to Christians, as it is believed to be the birthplace of Christ. So we thought we'd remind you of that past siege because of this week's siege. Meanwhile, after months of talking about racialized police brutality here on This Is Hell, I'm considering our dystopian future of Police State 2.0, which is going to be even worse than the police state we currently live in. Ah, the future of roving gangs of former cops who are no longer protected by the shield, but are advancing the agenda of their new political movement by mob violence and forts. Man, it's going to be great. Subscribe to the weekly Friday This Is Hell Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell to hear what it was like when the IDF laid siege to Christ's alleged birthplace, which is now an eerie precursor to what happened earlier this week at the Al-Aqsa mosque and my nightmare of a future with even more cops and worse cops will also be highlighted again that's the this is hell patreon podcast tomorrow friday live at 10 a.m chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell in a few minutes jeff dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment jeff will be reviewing bo o'reilly's new record because it's the last thing that the late actor michael martin asked jeff to do i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing Today's show is Alex Jerry, 
Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are answering the question. This week's question from hell is, what are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? And I'm going to dedicate this segment to uh, Just Flying Needle, who has a very long response oh my God. to read in its entirety. It's, it is uh, great. fantastic. It's a journey, Flying Needle. Oh, my God. What are you old enough to remember? Flying Needle comments, apartheid, payphones, those little boxes that made noises that would give you payphone credit, mm. working assets, long distance phone company, <laughs> the free Ben and Jerry's coupons you'd get from working assets, the photocopies of the free Ben and Jerry's coupons <laughs> that would get you more ice cream, that little black book in my pocket that had everyone's phone numbers and addresses that I'd use when I hitchhiked into town and needed a floor to sleep on, getting bullied for being punk, getting called homophobic for slurs for being punk, not getting hired anywhere for being punk. <laughs> Busting food stamps for beer money, yellow ribbons during the first Gulf War, braces and headgear, video stores, compact discs being new technology and sounding devoid of life, hacky sacking with kids outside of punk shows in skate shop basements, gas costing under a dollar, the store that closed down Maximum Rock and Roll's Epicenter Record Store, or sorry, the show that closed down Maximum Rock and Roll's Epicenter Record Store, butt flaps on crust punks. Having to sit through the Krishna service to get the free food. <laughs> New records costing $6. Shut me up. I could go on forever. Kids these days. <laughs> we were in the final issue of Maximum Rock and Roll. Somebody put an ad for This Is Hell in their final if print issue, which I thought was really cool. And uh, do you remember Hollywood Video? Like Blockbuster, Alex? No. Oh, there was another one called Hollywood Video, like Blockbuster. It was just as big. It was the guy who was the original owner of the Florida Marlins. I think that's how he made his money. Maybe that was through Blockbuster. I thought it was through Hollywood Video. I saw a Hollywood Video store yesterday out on Peterson. There's actually a place where you can rent videos. I had no idea that was still going on. <sighs> you can leave your answer to this week's question mail on our Facebook page and tweet it to us. You can do whatever, but you got to do it now because Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth is coming up. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week, scratch that, all of the questions I asked this week here on This Is Hell were written while I was high. I know you have Hefe on the line. Thrifty, welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I can't save numbers of people in Jerusalem or Gaza, or even Tel Aviv for that matter, with the skills I've maybe foolishly chosen to cultivate. I'm a writer, sometimes even an artist. All I can do is process things, such as the current iteration of brutality by the Israeli occupation against its unwilling Palestinian wards, its painted birds, and I've been doing so with the help these days of the words and overall attitude of Palestinian-American poet and novelist Naomi Shihab Nye. That processing will take some time. It's going to be a collective effort. I hadn't considered the collaborative nature of a poet, my thought has always been that some writing is solitary, but nothing human is ever truly solitary. Longtime Chicago theater and music creator Bo O'Reilly was close friends with the recently departed Michael Martin, who I talked about 
two weeks ago. Today, I'm talking about Bo. And by way of talking about Bo, I'm talking about collective endeavors. And I can hear some construction equipment warming up outside my window. So you may hear that soon. Bo has a new record out. What can you say about a record by a man who is 12 centuries old in thunderstorm years, but has a new baby girl and includes a song not about that baby girl, though her vocals are featured on it, but about the boy baby that was posited earlier on and had received so many gifts in the mail he opened that he opened an imaginary emporium. Maybe I just said it. Uh, but probably not. The new record, Thrifty by Bo O'Reilly, available from Uvu Little or UVU Little, <laughs> UVU L-I-T-T-L-E, is an expression of intentional community. It's one of the things lately which, like hearing about the courtyard at Carrie's Lounge, or the cat at Carrie's Lounge, or anything at all going on at Carrie's, makes me want to come back to Chicago. Bo wrote all the lyrics, except a few, and sent them out for different musician friends to write the music and turn them lyrics into songs. And then those and other friends came together slash apart in that COVID way we've all resorted to and begun to polish to record them. All during the 2020 plague year, that's what happened. Soil, earth, plant, and tree metaphors will be relied on heavily in this discussion. A few words about Bo's words. His diction and expression arise organically from strata of influences layered over a bedrock of the imperative to create. There has never been any question to Bo, or at least I've never detected any, that the writing, creating, rehearsing, and playing with others would go on. I feel this is probably true of all those involved in this record. But that's the foundation of lyrical discovery I've always seen and felt in Bo's writing. The lyrics always involve the ongoing world and its inhabitants outside the writer-singer. Rarely do I hear the word I in the lyrics. We seems the preferred first-person pronoun. You and they and their myriad antecedents fleshing out most of the crowd populating the singer's world. Or that's how I hear it. And if I'm wrong, well, then maybe it's because there's always something mediating between identities in the songs. A scarf, a bat, a sky, a mutually known other, a memory, a name one wants another to say, a button, a table leg, a toad. The songs aim outward into the world. The collection of musicians involved make this a tree with roots deep and wide, reaching into various communities of Chicago independent music and storefront theater. I first met Bo in 1988 when he and collaborating stage presence Jenny Magnus were the hub, at least as I saw it, of ongoing musical, literary, and theatrical extended families. And the music that grew within and around their co-evolving stagecraft became a singular organism, grown out of folk elements, there it is, cabaret elements, rock elements, and lyric influences diverse as Bertolt Brecht, Edith Piaf, Irving Berlin, Allen Ginsberg, Jagger and Richards, Basho, Torch songs, blues songs, romance language, political laments. I still hear those elements as particles of the music that is its own undefinable being. I was going to use the label art song, but apparently that's something with a rigid definition, and I don't want to argue definitions. 
The instruments are firstly the voice, bows primarily, and include plucked and strummed strings by, among others, Theodor Ublach's Baudelaire in a Boxes, Chris Schoen, and T. Roy Martin, who's also on tuba and trombone at times, and both of whom have played in Bo's Crooked Mouth String Band. A satisfying bass clarinet by Des Desormo of Mambo Zombies with longtime neo-futurist Heather Reardon's accordion on several tangos. The singing saw of experimental sound studios Ralph Loza. Worldwide master jazz trombonist Jeb Bishop, and many guitars, pianos, drums, fiddle, and voices provided by the thickening forest of brilliant members of the community Bo has formed of his friends and family. The music composers range widely, too. Multi-instrumentalist and singer Vern Tanger's setting of Bring It Over Here allows Bo's dynamic range a big space to fly in. Singer-songwriter and author of the excellent book This Land That I Love, contrasting Irving Berlin and Woody Guthrie as anthemists, John Shaw, set the somehow familiar on first hearing Honeyed Mouth. Stephanie Rierich's piano on The Hook, to which she wrote the music, incorporates so much of what I've imagined above are the influences on Bo's musicality. On Falling, there's Majestic Piano by DePaul music professor and avant-garde composer Jeff Kolakowski, who also wrote the music for the song and provides additional vocals. Julie Williams featured vocals on the song for which she did the setting and co-wrote the lyrics, Love is the Province, have an almost Moe Tucker clarity of timbre, although Julie's pitch is far more stable. Longtime O'Reilly creative partner Mickey Greenberg set the words to head up the freeway, and his vibrant piano on that song is a blood tonic to hear again. Chris Schoen set Bat and Fist, featuring Beautiful Fiddle by Old Town School of Folk Music's Colby Maddox, and fattened up with rich background harmony vocals that are uncredited, but I believe I detect the, wor- the roaches axed tonal purity of Jenny Magnus. Jenny and Bo wrote it together. Jenny wrote the words and music to Angle Smith, on which her exceptional supporting vocals are a unique instrument unto themselves. Court Dorsey, one of Bo's oldest and closest friends, has the only other words and music credit with Love Around the Corner, a song the optimism of which would sound foolish if not informed by well-earned awareness. Life is hard. Things break, bats shriek, gods have it in for you, people die. Making one's life about art is a struggle, unless one hits the fame lottery or has a supernaturally sunny disposition, and even then. All these artists are survivors of a capitalism that lives to penalize those who dare to wring their own personal treasure out of life and to offer that treasure to those who accept such rare, handmade, idiosyncratic currency. I don't mean to reduce this record to a small victory in the war between good and evil, life and death, freedom and slavery, but that it is a monument to the struggle for a rich community life against an increasingly atomizing and punitive social ethos pressing down on us all is undeniable. These are talented artists making art at my eye level, making music at my ear level, and I'm not a tall man, but they take me to the tops of trees. This music is also the thirst, that is the drink, and the soul soil to grow more music in. 
Again, the record is Thrifty by Bo O'Reilly, available from uvalittle.com. Bo will be performing on Saturday, online and in person at 8 p.m. Central Time at Constellation 3111 Northwestern Avenue, live streaming on YouTube. There will be links in the text of this review uh, for the venue for tickets and for the little catalog and Bo's record. Please remember to make a donation to the artists if you live stream it. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. Hello. Hello. There you go. My mic wasn't. Oh, Uh, hey. Hey, uh, so did you see the obituary for Anita Lane, who was the person who essentially invented the musician Nick Cave? No. It is fascinating. She died six, uh, like back in April, but the obituary showed up like six days ago. It was in the print version of the Times today. Anita Lane, L-A-N-E. She actually wrote. I will check it out. She wrote from her to eternity. She said, uh, Nick Cave that said that he wouldn't be if it wasn't for her. She just came up with the whole idea of the birthday party, uh, came, uh, wrote songs for uh, Bad Seeds. It's really, really amazing wow. that I'd never heard of her, which is so typical that you never hear of that right. person. And the other well, th- you never hear about the people behind the songs anyway. No, no, and that's why I keep my girly where she is. So also... Uh, <laughs> it takes a village. It does take a village. Also, you know what I, I was remembering while uh, you were doing your moment of truth? Right when we started the show, do you remember the curator of the estate for Eve Tangi was listening to the show and sending us emails? I remember uh, something like that, but no, I don't remember. I, why do I remember? Did 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 he send a painting or something? He sent, yeah, he sent some piece of art to us. I can I can't find it anywhere, but I just remember that was the one that was like right when we started the show. How this guy found our show was just beyond me. How was this guy in Paris listening to our show? I mean, we streamed the show live, but we weren't, you know, like archiving the show yet. So I, yeah, I just, something I remember. I have no saying. idea. Yeah. Chuck, yeah. I got to tell you, let a friend tell you. What's that? It's Al Aksha Mosque. Is it Aksha? Or Aksha. is that? I, don't, I know it's not spelled that way, but that's how I've always heard it from people who go there and walk around or people who avoid going there because supposedly the Holy of Holies is buried under there. Yeah, you, know. you know, the Ark of the Covenant that melted the covenant, that melted the Nazi faces and Dude, we, of the we, law. We all know that that's in that t- tiny Ethiopian church, okay? We know where that is. So that, No, I have it. Oh, you have it. I have, oh, wait, oh, no. I sold it at a garage sale. I had to liquidate everything I needed to pay rent. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Yeah. Until next time. All right. Stay beautiful. Oh, all right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. This week's question mail is, what are you old enough to remember? Alex, do you have any more responses from our listening audience? Yeah. What are you old enough to remember? What are you old enough to remember? And Neil C. says, being dumped in person. <laughs> Very good, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, Gorilla G says that actually Regan sucked. Austin RM says Netscape Navigator. <laughs> and Fabio L says I'm old enough to remember when the Clintons promised universal health care. Oh, a couple more. Our friends hypocrite readers say the day the music died. Ye Hoke says too much. And Robert P says 1968. What are you old enough to remember? Two more. Adam B says the end of history. And Andrew T says white dog poop. 
from the less scientific high calcium dog food from back in the 1980s. I thought that was just from you not picking it up for a while and it drying out in the no, sun. No, I uh, Andrew T sent me on a rabbit. I was reading all about it because I that's like a very early memory I have from uh, a kid is a uh, white dog poop and uh, yeah, it was uh, too much calcium in the dang food. Oh, uh, my dad used to yell at me and say it was because we hadn't cleaned it up fast enough and the sun had bleached it. <laughs> my, I also told my dad to get in on the IPO of Netscape, which was a huge mistake on his part not doing because you would have made a fortune if he cashed out. More gambling enough. losses on your end. <laughs> exactly, and more gambling losses affiliated with my dad. Uh, so let's see. Uh, the a- answers I liked the most were uh, Neil definitely saying being dumped in person. That was great. Uh, Bradley saying I vaguely remember feeling something. <laughs> Barrett saying, what are you old enough to remember? Nelson Rockefeller banging my mom on the desk at One World Trade Center on Mother's Day. Alex had a great response. I remember one reverse cowgirl meant a damn minotaur. Uh, is that cowgirl, by the way? Uh, Fab- Fabio saying, I'm old enough to remember when the Clintons promised universal health care. That makes this week's winner. It's a slam dunk, if it's true. Barrett saying, Norman Rock. Nelson Rockefeller. Norman, Norman Rockefeller would be way better. I want to see that painting, actually, of Norman Rockefeller banging his mom on the desk at One World Trade Center on Mother's Day. Barrett saying, Nelson Rockefeller banging my mom on his desk at One World Trade Center on Mother's Day. You can also see the painting on the front page of the 1958 Saturday Evening Post. <laughs> my answer to this week's question from hell, what are you old enough to remember? My answer is, I'm old enough to remember when young people would show some goddamn respect for their elders. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is see your doctor. They might send you to the hepatologist, but you really might need to see a psychiatrist. And if you want to know what a hepatologist is, go back and listen to Monday's show. Thanks to this week's guests, including Sayandeb Chaudhry and Rajendran Nayaranan, and our co-authors of the monthly review article, A Made in India Shock Doctrine, with a little help from Latin America. Also, thanks to historian Matthew D. Lassiter, who wrote the Boston Review article, Police and the License to Kill. Detroit police killed hundreds of unarmed blacks in response to the civil rights movement. Their ability to get away with it reveals why most of today's proposals to make police more accountable are bound to fail and how we can do better. And thanks to today's guest, writer and translator Rona Lorimer, who posted the Boston, or sorry, Brooklyn Rail article, Pity the Poor Police. New laws to back the blue. See Rona's additional writing on the French laws to extend police power entitled Images About Images at endnotes.org.uk. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing and Richard Norwood for running the board and everything else they do for the show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Alex, do we have any idea of who's going to be on the show next week? Uh, someone talking about Columbia. Maybe <laughs> someone talking about supply chains. Still working on it. F5N at the moment. But the Columbia person is confirmed yet or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And that's for Monday, right? Yes. Uh, awesome. So at least I have some work to do. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when we will be sharing our 2002 interview with Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for Rapprochement Between People. When we spoke with uh, Ghassan about the Israeli Defense Forces siege of the Church of the Nativity, and I'll be describing our hellish future of the police unleashed as mobs to impose a dystopia upon us all. 
But you can only hear all of that by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your tom- palms towards the sky, <laughs> focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>